You're listening to Making a Living Show. I'm Roby Levy. Hi, my name is Erin Shields, and I make theater for a living. When I first met Erin Shields, she was just a normal, theater-loving ninth grader who wanted to be in the school play. Little did I know she'd go on to become one of the most celebrated and sought-after playwrights in the country. With plays like If We Were Birds and Paradise Lost, she's won worldwide audiences, critical acclaim, and countless awards, including the Governor General's Award. Here's my chat with Erin Shields. Who are you and what do you make for a living? (laughs) My name is Erin Shields and I am a playwright. How did you get started playwriting? Well, I sort of got started (laughs) in high school, actually, (laughs) when you and I were in high school together. (laughs) And we did my sort of first show at Westdale Secondary School was Black and Blue, which you were also in. We were in together, yes. Uh, We were in together. And uh, our incredible drama teacher, David Daler, it was sort of an anthology about um, about, uh, uh, violence against women. Um, quite a powerful little piece, actually. Yeah, pretty serious um, for high school Sears Drama Festival kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah. totally. And um, at a certain point, he asked if I'd be interested in writing a monologue for the show, uh, which I did. And then I sort of continued to 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 do more writing, and and you know, I think acting is what really drew me to to playwriting. Um, and so I did a bit more through high school and then I went to theater school in, uh, in the UK. I went to Rose Bruford College of Speech and Drama, um, and trained as an actor there. And, um, and then when I was through that, I moved to Toronto and I, you know, set about trying to get acting gigs and, uh, I discovered quite quickly that that was hard. And what was hard <laughs> first about of it? all, well, well, well it was, it was, and I always, you know, talk to students I work with now. I'm like, imagine a time before the internet (laughs) (laughs) when you had to go to this place called theater Ontario. And there was this, this job posted, this audition posting bulletin board. And you sort of go and try to figure out what you could audition for. And, um, I quickly found out that most of the roles for young women were either, um, uh, for, skinny, pretty girls being kind of dum-dums and, and helping along the male characters. Um, or they were, uh, or no, that was pretty much it. That's it. Yeah. <laughs> that That's pretty much what it. female roles were. Well, were I think things were changing so slowly, but, yeah. but those are the things that I was available to audition for. And there were tons of young women who were also auditioning for those roles. And in some ways I just didn't fit the, the proper convention of what that is. So I was like, you know what? I'm just going to I'm just going to make my own play then. So I wrote a one-woman show about a vegetarian who eats a hot dog and it all goes downhill from there. She sort of hides it from her vegan community and um, played a bunch of roles and I toured it across the country in fringe festivals. And that's when I realized, oh, wow, I can do this myself. I don't have to wait for for anyone else's permission. If I I can I can just make it myself. And then, um, and, and around that time, sort of the early 2000s, up until today, but there's a very healthy um, independent theater scene in Toronto. And so I met sort of like-minded collaborators who were also just hungry to make stuff. And we just started making work together and putting it out there and then inviting the gatekeepers, inviting the artistic directors and literary managers to come see the shows. And, and, uh, and that's how I really got started. 
Um, and eventually I wrote a play that felt too big to be in. <laughs> I felt like I needed to sit on the outside and be able to observe it and, and figure out how it worked. Um, and that's how I sort of stepped more into to playwriting than acting. So tell me about your Fringe Festival experience. Like, do you apply to one single festival, one Fringe Festival, like Fringe Toronto, Fringe Ottawa, I think, Fringe Vancouver? Do you do them individually, or is it kind of like you send it into Fringe Central and they kind of decide where you can play? There's a couple of options. Um, There is sort of a lottery, like a tour lottery, or there was, you'd have to look it up, um, where you could apply for a tour lottery and get to tour to five, I think, different fringe festivals. Um, and, and what's really great about the fringe festivals is that they're organized chronologically east to west across the country. So I started in Montreal in June and ended in Victoria, Vancouver in September. So it was really, really, um, great. Now it's a lottery, so you don't get into every single one. Toronto is probably the hardest one to get into because there's a lot of competition. Um, and that year I didn't get into the Toronto one. And what's, what's fun about it is you, you meet a whole bunch of other people who are touring around and you can, and you can make some money too, you know, at least enough, at least enough to do, to, to cover your costs. And in my case, I made a bit more, you know, especially if you do a one person show, you can. Right. Not really splitting it with too many right. people. Yeah. I, yeah. I didn't realize Fringe actually paid the performers. I mean, if you, if I, I think of like f- uh, film festivals and stuff where whatever box office is there, they're not splitting it between the filmmakers. Uh, in, in the fringe festival, you actually get a hundred percent of the box office. So you pay a fee up front and then uh, that fee sort of covers your costs in the festival. And then you get, yeah, you get a hundred percent of the, of the, the ticket sales. Right. So there's ex- extra impetus to, promoted and to make sure you have a turnout and things along those lines, get press and stuff like that. Yeah, absolutely. Did you, was that uh, well-received, that project? Yeah, it was actually. It was a good little show. Yeah. I'm not sure it would necessarily hold up today. I I don't think I'm (laughs) going to be going on tour with it anytime soon, but it was, it was definitely, you know, um, a pretty good show, I think. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So then once you did step away from the stage, like was that transition particularly difficult or was that something that really felt right at the time? Uh, well, I did a little bit of back and forth. Part, partly it also lined up with when I became a mother. So um, um, after that first show that I watched on the outside, I did one more show called Montparnasse where I, where I um, wrote with my collaborator, Mev Beatty. I wrote this play about uh, uh, artist models in, in Paris in the 1920s. Um, during which I was naked on stage for most of the play. And uh, we did that play three times. I think the first time, uh, the first time I was pregnant and the second two times I was, I had like, you know, a a cesarean section scar on my stomach and was breastfeeding. And so it was, there was something quite kind of interesting about it. During like, yeah, yeah, exposed on stage. Yeah. (laughs) Um, which was, which was kind of fun. And, and part of the, 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 the joy of that particular piece was saying, this is what women's bodies look like. This is, this is beauty. This is, this is interesting. This is inspiring. Um, but yeah, af- after that, I, I, I think I, I, first of all, I got more into playwriting, but also, you know, having one child and then another child, it's, it's very difficult to, to, perform every night when, when you're, 
uh, a mother, you yeah. know, sleep deprived and feeding, sleep deprived, and, breastfeeding, yeah. all that kind of stuff. Not to say people don't do it. Lots of people do it. And, um, but for me, it, it uh, the, the playwriting seemed to be a better fit, particularly in the early years of, of my kids. Um, and recently I've been sort of hankering to get back on stage a little bit more. So we'll see. Revive the one woman play. Yeah, exactly. Hot dog. <laughs> Hot dog coming soon. Yeah. So what was the difference? Because a lot of people have fringe plays, do pretty well, and can spend a lot of their career in, in amateur status. But you took a big leap forward. What was the play that sort of put put you into sort of the, the pro status? Yeah, it was a play called If We Were Birds, um, which is a play um, I, I'd actually um, – come out of doing uh, um, these playwriting units. And in when I was coming up anyway, at all the theaters in Toronto, there were these playwriting units where you would write these plays and hope the theaters would program the plays and you were trying to, to write exactly for those theaters. But it was always sort of frustrating because there seemed to be a big gap between those groups and then what actually got programmed. And so I wrote a play during that process and my dream was to get a play on at Tarragon Theatre um, which is really sort of the center of new play development in Toronto. Um, and I was in that playwrights unit and tried so hard to write a play they'd program and failed so spectacularly at doing so. And I came out of that and I said, you know what, fuck it. I'm just going to write a big, huge play that I want to write that nobody's going to program because there's too many, too many actors in it. And I wrote a, I wrote a play for nine actors that was about um, systemic rape, uh, mostly in times of war so a comedy. Um, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Hilarity ensued. Yeah. <laughs> it's a Greek tragedy, actually. <laughs> Inspired by Greek myth. Um, and and I self-produced it at the Summer Works Festival, which is slightly different than the French festival in that uh, it's curated, but it's very much the same. Um, and the artistic director of Tarragon Theater, with whom I had a relationship, he came to see the play and said, Great, I'm gonna program that. And so it's, it sort of taught me a bit of a lesson in that, you know what, you just have to, to, to follow your instincts, write what you've got to write. And, you know, the, the, if, if, if you do that, people will, opportunities will open up. But if you're constantly trying to cater what you do to the very specific parameters of what you think other people want, um, you're not really being truthful to yourself as an artist and you're also less likely in some ways to get, to get programmed. Yeah. I think a lot of people spend a lot of time, certainly on the business side of, of things, they, they want a sure thing. They want to know that there's an audience who wants a certain type of product and they want to make that product and deliver it to them. But the problem is, is art doesn't work that way. Whether it's theater, whether it's visual art, whether it's photography, whether it's music, it just really doesn't. It doesn't necessarily mean that everything has to be highbrow. By any stretch. I mean, you get yep. idiot comedies that just really register with people and you get these seriously dramatic, intense things that also do. But you can aim for the for the center of the of the target, but you won't necessarily hit it just because you tried. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So and that play, like if we were birds, that that went on and, and picked up some, you know, a few sort of minor awards, right? <laughs> a few a couple a little, little couple nominations. Was it? Was yeah. that, uh, how many Doras? Did you get? Yeah, we were nominated for five Doras and we won two. Um, but I guess the real success was that I won the Governor General's Award for it right. uh, in 2011. So 
So that was pretty. That, that must was have been amazing. insane. Yeah. Yeah. That was insane. How does one that even get so in the great. running for a governor general's award? How does how, how does somebody even know to consider? You? Well, your publisher does it because it's through submits you. It's through, um, it's for published works. So, um, so yeah. But I mean, I was just mind blown to to be to be uh, selected as a finalist, and then to to win the thing was 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 gobsmacking. So, and was this uh, at a big event? I don't know how they do the governor general. Yeah, there's a big event. They, you go to Ottawa and, um, you know, half the winners are Francophone and half are Anglophone. And you sort of get shuttled around to a few different events. And then there's sort of a big um, award ceremony with the governor general. So, so what did it mean to you to, I mean, even just be nominated? It's an honor just to be nominated. Like, what did that mean to you and to your career? to be recognized like this? Well, it, it, it just felt, uh, well, it felt affirming in some ways that, um, that, a, a jury of my peers had selected my, my piece. Um, it felt, I also got $25,000, which was uh, really great. Right. <laughs> <laughs> it's super helpful <laughs> at that time in my life. Um, and, and, and it just gave me sort of this, this, this credibility, I suppose. Um, not, I should say that it that it manifested in a huge number of commissions or anything specifically afterwards. Um, I had I had maybe hoped it would, but it uh, would mean less hustle. But no, it didn't no. mean less hustle. <laughs> it meant it meant keep going. You're on the right track. Keep going. Um, so yeah, yeah. I don't I don't think you know I don't think prizes ever necessarily like yield a million opportunities, but, but they do sort of, um, there's some, there's a confidence building aspect to it and a legitimacy. You know, I think, I think probably most artists start, start out feeling like they are imposters in some way. And, uh, it, it takes, sometimes it takes the mentor or sometimes it takes a teacher or sometimes it takes a, a prize for getting into something you didn't think you get into to sort of say, no, 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 you, you're an artist. Keep going. What are you working on right now? Yeah. I mean, the stupid pandemic, right? <laughs> I was going to have such a killer year. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Cause wasn't, wasn't one of your, your had, big plays supposed to go out? I had this tour? great big play paradise lost at the Stratford festival. And, uh, we managed to do a run of that production at the Centaur in Montreal in February, 2020. Um, but then it was supposed to go on to Bart on the Beach in Vancouver. New productions, not the same production. Uh, the National Arts Centre in Ottawa and Canadian Stage in Toronto. These were big, massive A-house theatres, which one by one got closed and postponed closed. slash cancelled, yeah. then postponed and cancelled, and you know, um, and a, a whole bunch of other stuff. So that was that was really hard, you know, grieving the loss of those works of art that may or may not happen now was, was pretty hard. Um, but yeah, you know, I, I, I did continue writing. I, I actually wrote a piece kind of about definitely about the pandemic. It was sort of the only thing I could write. It's called here we are. And it's, it's an actually an audio recording that, that, um, people can still listen to. I'll send you a link to that. Um, which is sort of trying to find, like our, our collective experience through this thing, um, 
even as we've been very much living as individuals separate from one another for so many reasons, not just the pandemic, trying to, to reach out and empathize and connect with other people's experiences in order to try to make sense of this thing. Um, so that's a major thing that I worked on last year. And then coming up, I've got a, I've got a, a, um, a play I've been writing for Soul Pepper, um, which is called Queen Goneril, which is a, um, a prequel to King Lear. I sort of started out, what if Goneril had a storm? <laughs> what if she got to wander around and have an existential crisis? And, and, um, and so that's been really fun. So that's, that's in the works. Will that um, get mounted? Do you know? I mean, now with things coming uh, back online, yeah. is that the plan? Yep. Yep. As far, I mean, yes. When is the question, (laughs) but yes, it's definitely, it's definitely in the pipeline. Now, a lot of your stuff is written, like you do a lot of updates. I mean, I'm I'm Mm -hmm. simplifying it by calling it an update, but you do take plays and reimagine them. So Mm -hmm. characters and thoughts and and stories that we are familiar with, be it from high school or be it from other theaters or whatever, but, and, and, and you put a different spin on it. Like, how do you go through that process and, and, and what motivates you to go and do that? Yeah, I'm really, really interested in the the canon, <laughs> the, the classical canon. I'm really drawn to those works because of the poetry, the stories, the characters, um, uh, play, you know, plays like Shakespeare's plays or restoration plays or John Milton or, you know, um, I love the Greeks and, um, I, I'm just drawn to, to that, um, that material, um, but I always come to a point with it where I find myself missing, where I go, wait a second, where are the women here? <laughs> or why is this woman, why is Eve making dinner while Adam has an interesting conversation with an <laughs> angel? Like, that doesn't seem fair. Um, so I, I, I think partly, I, I know I, I'm, I'm really interested in, in how these canonical pieces are, are part of the, the foundation bricks of our society. Um, you know, we're talking so much about systemic change right now, and I think a big part of the systems that we have to look at are the stories um, that are the bedrock of our, of our modern Western culture. And so I'm really interested in going into those texts, um, playing around and bringing out what I love about them, but also questioning their authority in our cultural history and also inserting myself slash women <laughs> um, into, into those stories. Um, and it's, it's a lot of fun to do that too, you know? Well, you, and you've had great response, obviously, to this type of work, but at the same time, have you had negative response? Have people taken issue to your reimaginings and to your infusing of these stories with things that weren't there mm-hmm. in the original text. Well, absolutely. I mean, I, 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 I'm not entirely sure what all the whispers are that people, <laughs> that, that people don't like about it, but, but certainly there are, you know, there's the occasional review where they're like, Oh, that's not the real way. Or, you know, that's not what Milton meant. Um, but I, and, and part of me, when I get into it, when I start working on paradise lost, I'm like, sure, I can take on Milton. And then I get into it and I'm like, oh my God, this is really good. <laughs> this is Milton. Who the hell do I think I am? And I sort of imagine Milton sort of behind me going like, what are you doing to my <laughs> epic poem? <laughs> um, but I, you know, I, 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 with, with, yeah, I get help too. So I, um, you know, I, 
I was inspired to work on, on the Milton because I had a really, really great teacher at the University of Toronto um, named Paul Stevens, who, who um, sort of taught a course on, on Milton and the Bible and the intertextual, intertextuality of, of, of Paradise Lost. And he just, he just approached that material with such uh, humor and, and irreverence, sort of in, invited others to do the same. Um, and I had a few conversations with him while I was writing to just to sort of, you know, check in. And he was always like, ah, you're not an academic. Don't worry about it. <laughs> you're an artist. Be an artist. Do what you want. When you're taking apart something that is revered and is loved and is, as you're saying, part of the narratives that we all know and have told for years and years and years and years, who do you check in with? How do you make sure you're going down the right path. What do you, what are your checks and balances? What, how do you know when it's done? Uh, those are all really great questions. I mean, I mean, partly for me, I try to, I'm taking it as far, I'm taking it far away from the original. So, so the contract I'm making with the audience is not, I'm retelling this thing that you love exactly the way as it quote unquote should be. My proposal is pretty clear that it's a departure from the original. So first of all, that helps. Um, the second thing is that when you make a uh, theater, the great thing is you're not alone. So I start alone most of the time and I work and I work and I work and I work. And sometimes I'm in conversation with a dramaturg. Sometimes I have an academic buddy who's helping me a bit. Um, but then I, I get into a room with actors and actors ask the best questions and the stupidest questions, but they're all helpful. Um, and then you get designers who are giving offers, the director's giving a ton of offers. So, so by the time the play reaches the stage, it's actually been through a number of other very intelligent brains and bodies to, to critique it and ask really great questions. Well, and what is the, the line? So in other words, you start by yourself. How do you get somebody else involved? Do you, do you literally pitch an idea? Like, I've got an idea. I want to take Milton's Twitter, and I'm going to mess it around this way. I'm going to put that down on paper, and I'm going to send it to, what, a theater company? to actually review and consider? Is that how that it, works? It all have. There's lots of different ways. So um, uh, at this point in my career, I'm working mostly on commissions. So what does that wood. mean? That's lucky. So what that means is, yeah, I, either I, I pitch something. So with Paradise Lost, I said, hey, I've got, I'd love to adapt Paradise Lost um, through a feminist lens, a contemporary feminist Canadian lens, uh, here's my idea. I sort of um, talked to the literary manager, wrote a two-page pitch, and um, what they do at Stratford anyway is they commission a first draft. So I wrote a first draft, and if if it's something they they feel like they that might be for their audiences, then we'll continue with the commission. So they they pay me to write, and then um, when it gets on stage, I also get a percentage of the box office as as a as a fee. And does it, does that work? Like if they mount it somewhere else down the road, do you also get a fee? Like is that that fee kind of follow you around? Oh yeah, like a yeah, non, yeah, non yeah. fungible whatever. Like we're it's all in the news now. <laughs> <laughs> it's not imaginary work, but it is imaginary in some ways. Um, yeah, I mean the 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 contract in in Canada in Canada is usually ten percent of the box office for the playwright, uh, which is was negotiated with the with the playwrights guild of Canada. Right. So. I've always wondered how playwrights actually get paid. That's how we get paid. Well, now we, get, we know. Yeah, we get a commission first if the theater is able to do that. But then sometimes, you know, I've been writing a new piece 
over the past, another new piece over the past year, and I applied for a candidate council grant, and I specifically wanted to write it not attached to a theater. So the writing time was paid for by this grant from the candidate council. And then when I know what it is and have a really good sense of what it, what I want it to be, then I'll, I'll be able to say, okay, where might this be a good fit? That's, that's effectively a lot like writing a spec script for film and television. Basically write your script and then see if you can sell it after the fact. Yes. Here's a question. Hmm. Why theater? Like, why have you ever considered film, television? Why, why, why theater exclusively? Is that just where you've always been drawn? I just love it. I'm just addicted to it. It's the form. It's, it's being with other people. Well, the most part, people are so nice. It's, it's fun. It's, I can actually be in the, like, I love being in the audience and having this, um, communi- communicating with, with, uh, bet- the, the communication that happens between performer and audience is, uh, in the, in the performing arts. It happens with music as well, but there is something in that energy about that communication that I find to be so exciting when it works well and so deadly when it doesn't, <laughs> like there's nothing worse than watching a bad, a bad play. Um, but film and TV don't work like that. And when you're in the audience for one of those forms, which I enjoy, you, you don't affect the, the action that you're seeing on the screen. Mm-hmm. And you can play with your phone the whole time. It doesn't matter. But if you're in the theater, you've got to actually commit to, to being there and, and you're with other people in this communal exchange. So you said earlier that you, you generally are starting a lot of these projects solo. Somewhere in your brain, somewhere over some coffee, get an idea, spark of a thing. But who fills out the team? I, like, do you have management? Do you have an agent? Do you have a writing partner? I mean, who, who are you working with? I don't. I don't write with other people generally. Um, I so it, it it sort of goes through the theater. I do have an agent. I have a playwriting agent who negotiates my contracts. But in terms of the team, um, usually what happens is once the artistic director decides to program the play they usually consult me about who I might like as a director. And then the director is sort of the point person for everybody else. Um, and usually I'm in communication with the director about, about actors I might be thinking about, um, designers, but, uh, but really all those decisions then come down to it's the director's decision. Since so much of your work is about you infusing or at least ensuring that there's a feminist perspective in the work, do you find that, theater in general is a more egalitarian place for your works to be done or for you to exist or does it have no, a long way to go too? Not necessarily. Yeah. <laughs> not necessarily. <laughs> I think, I think we're getting there. Um, I don't know. There's a lot of, there's a lot of change and a lot of reckoning that has been happening. Um, particularly in terms of equity, diversity and inclusion in, in the theater scene mm-hmm. in, in Canada, all over Canada. Um, and you know, after Me Too, there was a there was a huge reckoning in terms of um, in terms of gender and the way women um, are treated in the in the workspace and the way harassment issues are dealt with in the workspace. So so that has has changed significantly. Um, yeah, I mean, I I think you'll find that still there are more um, more new plays put on that are written by men and more plays just by men in general that are produced in Canada. Um, but we're getting there. We're getting there. What would you like to see different? What would you like to see as sort of a, a, a next 
move in terms of equality, in terms of uh, creativity, in terms of, you know, theater? What, where would you like to see Canadian theater go? I, I would like to see Canadian theater really respond to its audiences. I'd like to see um, more change in terms of who 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 is leading these theaters, and that is happening. Mm-hmm. The new artistic directors in um, in a lot of the the Canadian theaters. You know, Wayne Mangesha is now the the artistic director of Soul um, of Soul Pepper. Um, uh, uh, a black Montrealer is going to be the new artistic director of Tarragon Theater, Mike Payette, who I've worked with is great. Um, and once those sort of changes in power uh, start to happen, and on the board level too, I, I think, a lot of the other artistic um, changes that are necessary will happen. <laughs> because choosing the plays that are presented, it, 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 it is, it's what the artistic director likes. You know, it's all a matter of there's there's no there's no objectively good or bad play. I mean, there are some that are pretty stinky <laughs> and some that are very amazing, but there's a lot in between that that um, you know, with with resources, with a dramaturgy, with support, can get to be you know on on a lot of these stages. So um, so I think yeah, trying to cha- changing. Changing the people who are in charge, I think, will have a lot of uh, ripple-down effect. Once one of your plays is mounted, it's on stage, it's running, what's your responsibility to it? What are you doing day-to-day with it? You wash your hands of it and go, okay, it's in the hands of the director and I'm off and running, the actors and everybody, it's it's good to go? Or are you out there promoting it? Are you out there uh, – are you at performances and actually registering some sort of critique? Does anybody listen? contractually uh both myself and the director are done on opening night and then it is for the actors and the stage manager to run the show um sometimes the stage sometimes the the director will come back and in longer runs they'll be able to give notes to the the cast to tighten things up a little bit to tighten things up or say you know to to you know, sometimes a, a play will sort of start to go sideways. <laughs> Drift, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and, you know, it's the stage manager's job to try to keep it on point, but, but that can be a difficult thing. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, I mean, it's, it, I find it, it's so excruciating to watch a play that I've written. It's like <laughs> the worst thing in the entire world. It, it gives me no pleasure, but but also it's, of course, that's what I want. <laughs> um, so yeah, I need, I, after opening night, cause I usually, we have previews, right? So we'll run the play, you know, for anywhere from, you know, three, I think at Stratford, maybe it was even 10, 15 shows before opening and you're constantly making changes, tweaking. So by the time it gets to opening, I'm like, oh my God, I can't see this thing. <laughs> I hate this thing. For Get me a out of while. here. <laughs> totally. I absolutely hate it and I can't see it anymore. Um, so I run away. Uh, but then I'll usually come back a bit later and just watch and try not to squirm too much. Can you actually separate yourself enough to enjoy your own work that, that down the road when you're when you're away from all of the initial work and, and, and the craziness leading up to opening night? I don't know if enjoy is the right word. <laughs> not hate it. <laughs> not hate it. I can I never really hate it. And I and I can I can I can enjoy moments and I can enjoy the actors, but I think I think and and in some sense I can enjoy it, but then I, I guess a part of me 
because because while while I'm watching the show, it it I almost feel like I'm still in the writing process where I'm actually willing it to happen, um, which is a very physical feeling. <laughs> so it. Um, but unlike being on stage, you know, when I've written something that I'm performing in, there's a release, there's an outlet because you're acting and then people applaud and you're all sweaty and then you have a beer. It's great. But, um, when you're the writer or the director, you sit really tense in the back of the audience, (laughs) squirming away and wincing whenever they make a mistake. So is it a hard handoff, uh, with the director? I mean, my understanding is a theater is a lot more collaborative between, you know, and, and the, the writer has a hell of a lot more input for, than, for example, in screen-based writing. The screenwriter writes something and the director does not want to hear from the screenwriter ever. And yet it seems like it's a little bit more collaborative or maybe a lot more collaborative in the theater space. But is, at a certain point, you do have to give it over, right? Is that, is that a hard thing to sort of say, all right, take my words that I slaved over for months, maybe even years, and do what you will with it? Uh, I, I like it. I like, I like that process. I, I, so my, my recent process with this, this, this whole thing is I'll be in the rehearsal hall for the first two weeks and I'll be really involved in answering questions and rewriting and changing things and cutting things. And then I generally take a break and go away and leave them alone for a bit. So they stop looking at me and start focusing more on, on the director's vision for the piece And then I come back, you know, at some point in tech or for the dress rehearsal and sort of see where it's at. And that generally feels really good. That generally feels really good. And I still make changes and I still, and, and, and actually in some ways can offer, um, production dramaturgy. So I can say that the director, you know what, is it, is it a bit dark in that scene? Cause then the director starts to not be able to see the thing cause they're, they're in it so much, you know? Um, so I can be a bit more of an outside eye for the director. Um, but in general, you know, it feels really nice to, to, um, to really be in collaboration with, with the director. What kind of advice would you give to somebody who wants to get into playwriting? Write is the first thing. (laughs) I think a lot of people, but particularly young, young writers or creators get really obsessed with the gatekeepers and trying to please people and trying to, trying to figure out how to get into the industry um, but the first thing you really have to do is work your art, you know, and so write a lot. And then also I would say, find your people, find your collaborators that are, that are at the same place as you, um, and, and work with them and actually do it, put on a play. <laughs> it doesn't take much to put on a play, even if it's in your backyard, even if it's online, like there's so many ways to, to do it now. Um, because it's through doing that you'll learn. And then you can also invite the gatekeepers then to come see your work. Um, yeah, those would be my two big pieces of advice. So where can people find out a little bit more about you? Um, well, I have a new website, hey. so you can go check that out. Erinshields.ca. <laughs> uh, um, and yeah, you can find out all about my um, all about my work there, my past work and my upcoming productions. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for being on the show and sharing how you make a living. Thanks for having me. It was a pleasure. Subscribe to Making a Living Show on Apple, Google, Spotify, Stitcher, and pretty much anywhere else you get your podcasts. For more on the show, visit makingalivingshow.com and follow along on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube. Making a Living Show is produced by Next Exit Media and hosted by me, Roby Levy. Thanks for listening.